currently there's an ongoing trial against the against Trump Org. A couple of its officials have pleaded have pled guilty to different criminal charges, uh, conspiracy to evade taxes over over years, over 15 years, and the government is going after the organization itself on the grounds that its officers, relatively high high ranking officers, committed crimes while in the course of their employment for the company. The defense is arguing these people have already pled guilty. That's not being debated anymore. The defense of the, the organization is arguing that that's their own business. They, they, they engage in this tax evasion for their own benefit or the benefit of other employees at the corporation, but the corporation should not be liable for this. Apparently, the, some, the legal issue hinges in part on a phrase in New, York's, uh, in New York's corporate liability law that talks about how a company is liable when, when its officers act in behalf, not on behalf, but in behalf of the company, the lawyers and the judge are all confused about what exactly in behalf of a company means. Does it mean for the benefit of a company? Does it mean while engaged in their official duties for the company? That's the issue going on in New York. As we've discussed in the past in other contexts, this is one area where halacha has a very different view from modern law modern Western law, halacha generally does not have any notion of vicarious liability or what the law calls respondeat superior, let the superior answer, let the, the boss or the organization be responsible for the actions of its agents and employees. We're all used to that. We, we all understand if, a, if, if, you know, if, 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 an, if an employee of a company causes me harm, I sue the company. I don't have to go after that uh, minor person without deep pockets. I go after the company. We're all used to that. that if a, if a maintenance man at a, at, a, at, a, at a building injures me, I sue the company. I don't sue that particular maintenance guy. We, we understand that there's this notion of vicarious liability, that the, the employer or the organization is liable, civilly, criminally. Halacha does not really have that notion. Halacha generally says everyone, personal responsibility, everyone is responsible for what he does. The, the, the employers, the, the, the organization, the business is generally not, mikra din, is not liable for what its agents do. Now, of course, as, as usual in Chosh Mishpat, there are questions of Dinah Malchusadina, Halacha may incorporate certain aspects of the, of the law, Minhag, certain Minhagim can be dispositive sometimes. So we're not going to get into that, but what I want to discuss tonight is a couple of chuvas, one or two chuvas on this, uh, illustrating this fundamental point, Halacha does not generally have the notion that somebody can be responsible for somebody else. There are principles that we'll explore in more detail soon called Einschleichud Baravera, that certainly when, when, when a crime is being committed, when an Avera is being committed, people are not responsible for what others do on their behalf, even if they told them to do it, even if they ordered them to do it. And there's also the concept of Grama Benizak and Potter, that only the person who directly causes harm is Potter, not people who bring about the causing of harm indirectly. Because of these principles, halacha does not really have any notion of vicarious liability, any notion of any notion of conspiracy, and that's what we're going to explore tonight. One or two classic chuvas on the topic of conspiracy, illustrating that halacha has no even of conspiracy. In this case, in Manhattan, the, the the argument the company is liable is not even conspiracy. No one's arguing that the company ordered them to do this. The argument is that a business is liable for, in certain cases, for what its employees do. We're going to see tonight, uh, on the other extreme, halacha, even when people engage in a criminal conspiracy, 
the planners and the, the organizers are generally not liable. Only the people who actually carry out the crime are liable. People who are involved in the planning and facilitating are generally not liable. Of course, what they're doing is uh, and God will, will, will punish them and will hold them accountable. But uh, in, in law, in, in the halachas of Chosh and Mishpat, people are generally not liable unless they actually commit the crime themselves. We're going to see primarily one tshuva, one major tshuva of the Truma Sedeshen, and perhaps a second tshuva of the Tashpats as well. They, so they were, they were roughly contemporaries. The, 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 the Truma Sedeshen was what was one of the, is one of the pillars of Ashkenazic halacha. The, it's the... It's the... Truma Sedeshen was, was a German sefer. It, 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 was, it was published... Um, do we know exactly when it was published? Or really the, the author lived from 1390 to 1460. And it was it, it, so. So the Truman's Nation was published sometime was was composed sometime in the first half of the 15th century. The Tashpats, Bishmuel ben Semach Duran, he was a great he he was a great North African posik. He he was a, he he was one of the great Svardim of roughly the same time. The the the, the exact day he was from 1361 to 14, 1444. Also, the a little bit older. The end of the 14th or the beginning of the 15th century, he he was one of the great, con, roughly contemporary. Contem- he was in Algeria. He was one of the great Sephardic North African posting of the time. He also has a tshuva dealing with conspiracy. As we'll see, their approaches are somewhat different. We're going to focus first on the tshuva of the Truma Sedeshin. Truma Sedeshin's case. Now it's interesting to note that the Truma Sedeshin, that he, he the it's, it's a classic sefer. It's the foundation of much of Ashkenazic halacha. It has two halves, the first half, second half. The first half in particular, there was a tradition that it, it, it shales the tshuvas, it's questions, it's questions that, he, that, that ostensibly he was asked. There's, there, there was a tradition that he, actually, that he actually composed. These were artificial, it was a literary device to teach halacha. These were not actual real-world questions. They were they were uh, they, 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 they were they were made up questions composed by the the author himself, Rabbi Israel Isserlin. Rabbi Israel Isserlin was this German posek who wrote the Truma Sedeshin. This is a tradition. The Shach brings it. They say the Chida brings it. Now, the Shach and the Chida were not just making a, a historical point. You should know an interesting bit of trivia. Truma Sedeshin didn't uh, wrote his own Shilas. They, they were making a point that we have to pay close attention to all the details of the question. Because in an ordinary question that actually came up, some of the details might not be relevant. There might be red herrings. It might be Maisa Shoya Kachaya. That's what happened. So he records the story. Truma Sedesha and the Shach says made up his own cases. So they're carefully constructed, deliberately. Every detail is, should be assumed to be relevant because why would he have put it in if he's making it up anyway? Later scholars have argued that this is not correct, that the, the Truma Sedesha and Shalos were real. Apparently, we, uh, we, we have a safer by one of Rabbi Israel's Talmidim, the Leket Yosher. Rabbi Yosef Yosef Astreicher, and in that sefer he gives us more background detail on, on some of the questions in the Truma Sedeshin, implying that they were actual questions with actual people, not artificial questions made up by his teacher. I'm mentioning this now, first of all, because it's just, it's just an interesting tidbit of, uh, of halachic trivia, but also because the case we're going to see is a rather uh, lurid and sensational case. I don't know if that's strictly relevant to the, the question or not, but as we see the case, so we will note that it's a remarkable, remarkably interesting case. She'ela. Ruven, Rishima, and Chasno. The two protagonists here, antagonists here, 
are Ruvain, these are pseudonyms obviously, but Ruvain and his son-in-law Shimon. Hayulahem Rivbeinam. They had a quarrel, family feud. So Shimon was out to get his father-in-law. He wanted to hurt him. He wanted to uh, make him suffer. This is something out of Sherlock Holmes, practically, but he says he knew of a, some kind of secret tunnel by which he could enter the, the place of business, the store of his father-in-law. His father-in-law kept a fortune, a fortune of goods or cash in his store. So Shimon decided to take advantage and hurt, hurt his father-in-law, Ruvain, who he was furious with. Vahalach Shimon el Levi. Shimon wasn't going to break into the store himself. Shimon contacted Levi. Levi is a third uh, player in this little game. Levi was, had the reputation of a criminal. Levi was a well-known thief. Shimon told Levi, I have, I, I have an opportunity for you. Here's a secret passageway into a store which has a fortune of uh, valuables inside. He showed him the machteres, the hamido l'sham, and he, he pointed him at the, this secret passageway into his father-in-law's business. And then Shimon walked away. Vaganov did what Ganovim do. Vaganov Levi, Bab Machteres, Altochachanos, Vaganov Misham, Shava Gimel Meosahuvim. He stole the property valued at 300 gold coins. Sounds like it was a lot of money. Ubarachlo. And he skipped town. Somehow this story unraveled, and I don't know if Shimon hoped to get away with this, but he didn't. It became known that he was the one who had orchestrated this act of malice against his father-in-law. Ruvain sued his son-in-law Shimon. I have no idea what proof they had if Shimon confessed it, if they brought compelling evidence to this, but somehow, we're not going to get into the evidentiary question, somehow it was established that Shimon was behind this theft. So Ruvain sued Shimon, his son-in-law, he sued him for, the, for, this, for this loss. He lost 300 Zehuvim. Is Shimon Chayev or not? We're not told of any defense Shimon had. Again, the, the facts are not being debated here. The, it has been established to the court's uh, satisfaction that Shimon is guilty of what, what was described here. The question is, is he liable? Essentially, as I mentioned in my introduction, does Halacha have any notion of criminal conspiracy? Shimon orchestrated the entire thing. He pointed Levi, a god of Mephursim, at his father-in-law's store. He showed him a secret uh, path in. He, 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 Shimon orchestrated the entire thing. Is he liable or not? Now, in the course of the Truman Sessions Tshuva, we're going to see, he analyzes the question, this exact question, does Halakha have any notion of criminal conspiracy? His answer is going to be no. The, the thing I said before about the, the colorful details of the question, the fact that Reuben and Shimon are father-in-law, son-in-law, the fact that they, they had a quarrel, he, none of that is going to be mentioned in any way in the Trumacession's analysis. The fact that they knew each other, that they were, that they were uh, father-in-law, son-in-law, the fact that the motivation was malice rather than any self-interest here. Not sure if any of that is relevant or not. It might be relevant in the sense that if Shimon would have received the stolen goods, then he might be liable. A receiver of stolen goods might be liable, to, at the very least, to, to, to disgorge them. So the point might be that Shimon himself did not receive any stolen property. He simply, why would he do it then if he's not receiving stolen property? And The answer is that he was in a fight with his father-in-law. 
Be that as it may, the basic question, putting aside this colorful detail of the family feud, the basic question is, does halacha have any notion of criminal conspiracy? If you engage civil conspiracy, criminal conspiracy, I keep saying criminal, I mean it was a criminal act, but there was a civil claim here. The, the issue wasn't, wasn't criminal punishment, the issue was, uh, the issue was civil liability. Does, does Shimon have any, sim, any civil liability for this conspiracy to, to, uh, to steal from Reuben? Says the Truman's addition, Yira, the din tzarech diktuk yafa. This halacha requires careful analysis. Betosus ubashri, Tosus and the Rosh, Perak Layachbar, second Perak in Baba Bastra, Bechem Perak Gozel Kama in Baba Kama. So, Mavur, that the Re, the Re Balatosus, Cholak al Shnei Drachim, Ben Dina de Garmi, the Kaimel Bukher in Meir de Chayelashal, Ben Grumman and Izakin, the Kaimel and the Osteravel Potter Milashal. The issue here is a fundamental question that has profound, ram- that has major ramifications for all of Choshen Mishpat, for the laws of Nazikin. On the one hand, there is a principle, Grama Benizakin Potter. If someone causes harm via indirect means, he, he causes, he, 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 he's, the, he, he's the clear cause, but it's considered indirect. That's called Grama from the Hebrew word Gorem. That's Grama Benizakin. The halacha is Potter. People often wonder why, I mean, if it can be proven and clearly established, why is he Potter? Isn't it fair he should be Chayev? It's a good question. I don't know why exactly the Torah says Potter. But that is a fundamental rule in Chosh and Mishpat. There is no liability, no civil liability, no criminal liability either for Grama. The concept of Grama is a, is a broadly applicable concept in, in Halacha. We have Grama in Halacha Shabbos. You, you're not, you're not like Atchila allowed to do Malacha of Shabbos via Grama, but it's much more lenient. It's, it, it's rabbinic, and in certain cases we allow it. Grama is not the same thing as doing it directly. You have Grama in other, other, other areas of Halacha. And in Chosh Mishpat, in, in, in civil law, there's also a notion of grama, that action that you take via grama, if you cause someone else an injury via grama, so, so the normal civil liability that a mazik has to, uh, to make reparations for the harm that he caused does not apply if he did it via an act of grama. That's the principle of grama benizak and pater. So that's one principle. On the other hand, the, there's an opposing principle called dina de garmi, Rabbi Meir, the, the Tanner Rabbi Meir, he is called Doin Dina de Garmi. He, he holds people liable for Dina de Garmi. It's not clear what Dina de Garmi is. Garmi is the same root word as Garim. Essentially, there is at least a kind of grama, or maybe all grama, that Rabbi Meir holds grama, that Dina de Garmi is Chayef. Some say he just disagrees with the principle of Garmi Nizak and Pater, but the dominant view of most poskim is that, no, these two principles are consistent. Dina de Garmi is a subset of grama. Grama in general is pater, but there is a subset of grama called dina de garmi, a certain kind of more egregious grama, more serious grama, for which we don't say grama nizak and pater, we say dina de garmi is chayv. We pass it like Rabbi Meir, according to most posts. So the question then is, of course, so what is ordinary grama and what is dina de garmi? So this is going to be the framework for the entire tshuva, the Truma Sedeshen. The, the, the entire tshuva is going to revolve around untangling this, uh, this dialectic, what is grama, what is, what is dina de garmi, when are you chayev, when are you patr, and the Truman's Deshen is going, to, is going to try to, after we figure that out, he's going to try to bring this back to our case and discuss, is our case of this conspiracy to, to rob Ruvain, is that, is that a form of grama, and therefore Shimon is patr because of grama, nizak, and patr, 
Or is that a form of Dina de Garmi for which Shimon should be Chayef? That's the framework that he's going to use for the rest of the tshuva to analyze whether Shimon is Chayef or not. Is this considered, it's certainly not considered direct Hezek. It's certainly a form of indirect Hezek. Shimon didn't do it. Levi the Ganov did it. Levi's gone. If you can find Levi, of course, you can make him pay, but uh, Levi's gone. Shimon's liability, what he did was indirect. He pointed Levi at Reuven. That's Grama. The question is, is that ordinary Grama and he's Potter? Is that Dina de Garmi and he is Chayef? So the Rishonim give a variety of rules and principles, a variety of possible rules and principles to distinguish between Grama, which is Potter, and Dina de Garmi, which is Chayef. So the re, particularly the re balatosis, gives two, two, two approaches. Achilaka echad. His first approach is the cholhechad hamazik baatzma osa hezik. When the when the mazik, the tortfeasor himself, perpetrates the hezik, l'mamon chaveiro and bari hezeka, and the hezik is certain. It's uh, if we have to assess the probability given the the actions of the mazik, what is the likelihood of the hezik occurring? Bari hezeka, it's a certainty or near certainty. So it's basically more direct. In these cases, even if it's still grama, if, it, if the grama at least was done by the mazik himself, and it's bari hazeka, it's a certainty, that's called dina de garmi and yerchayef. However, if not, if it's not bari hazeka, then, then we say it is grama benizakin and your potter. That's the first approach of the re. Chilok second approach of the re is, or second distinction, it depends on the... Temporal proximity. How soon after the, the action of the mazik does the hezek occur? If the hezek is nasa miyad bishat maisa, the, the consequence of what he did is immediate, that's called dina de garmi. If not, if there's, a, if there's a temporal gap between the action he took and the damage that he caused, that's grom benizakin and that's potter. In the course of establishing and explaining these two approaches, the re and the other Chachmei Ashkenaz, they bring all kinds of different cases in the Gemara, some of which the Gemara calls Grama, some of which it calls Dina de Garmi, and, and, and the Balitosis, they try to use these principles to sort them all into two categories, all the ones the Gemara says Potter uh, because the Hezek is not immediate, or it's not Bari Hezekah, and they try to apply these Chalukim. Says the Truman Sedesh, and we're not going to get into all those different cases, but we're going to get into two of the cases which will help shed light on, on the proper way to look at our case two opposing cases, and understanding these two cases and how the principles of Tosis apply will help us understand whether our case should be considered Grama and Potter or Dina de Garmi and Chayev. Chada, first case, This is the crime of Mesira. If someone, if someone tells an enemy, tells bandits, or tells a, a lawless government that uh, here's a Jewish property, you can go find his property over here, and they, sure enough, they come ahead and they seize it, then the person who caused them to, to get it, to snatch it, is Chayev. That's a form of Dina de Garmi. A Moser is Chayev for the damage that he causes under the, under the doctrine of Dina de Garmi. The Edoch, the counterpoint to this is, though, Shisabos HaKelev, Shisabos HaNachash. If I incite a dog or a snake to injure somebody else, I say, go get him. Or I, I take the snake and I somehow aggravate it and agitate it and point it at somebody else. So I am putter. Again, putter doesn't mean you're a tzaddik, but you're, you're a Russia and uh, you're Shemayim, you have moral liability, but Bedine Adam, a court cannot hold you responsible for these things. These are called grama, pointing a snake or a dog at somebody else and causing the animal to damage. That's called grama and you're putter. So what is the distinction between pointing a bandit, pointing a human enemy at my friend's property 
and pointing a, a snake or a dog at my friend or his property? What's the difference? So the re, the re Balatosis tries to use the aforementioned doctrines to distinguish between these two cases. According to the first tarots, it depends on the level of certainty, whether it's Bari Hazeka. He says Mesira is considered Bari Hazeka. We have a strong presumption that these non-Jews, these enemies, are not going to rest until they seize whatever they get their hands on. But Vade and Marachman love, they're ruthless, they have no compassion. They, and it's also considered you do the Hezek yourself. It's, it's like you put, the, you put his property in harm's way. So that, that's considered, so according to the first doctrine of the Re, this is considered Bari Hezeka, it's like you did it yourself. Avol Shisebo, Kelevo, Anachash, Lo Bari Hezeka, they don't always bite, and therefore it's less certain. The Halacha Esav Sarnei Eliakov, the certainty that a human enemy will despoil the person you pointed him at, is much higher than the certainty that a dumb animal will make trouble. That's what the Re says in his first approach. And according to the second approach, he says, again, the, the, the question is whether the Hezek happens immediately. So again, the case of Moser, the Hezek happens immediately. We, we see the property is already destroyed, uh, even, though it, even if it doesn't actually get destroyed till later. But by Kelev and Nachash, the dog and the snake, the Hezek doesn't happen until after the animal goes ahead and does its damage. It's a little hard to understand what these, what these Chalukim really are. Why is the enemy, the human enemy, considered to happen right away? It doesn't happen until he takes it. I mean, he, 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 has to, he has to get it, he has to come down and grab it. The dog might be faster than the, than, than the human. It's a little hard to understand why, in the case of the human, we consider it as if it happened immediately, and the dog we don't. Why not? Well, why don't we say it by the dog also? We look at it as if it's already torn into pieces already. Not so clear. The first far of Bari Hezekah, again, it's a little hard to understand. While there are no doubt there are certainly some implacable, ruthless, unprincipled enemies in the world, not every non-Jew is like that. Not every non-Jew is going to be, uh, is, it's a sure thing, it's, it's, it's immediate, and it's, a, it's as if it happened already. So, you know, some, some, some of them have due process, some of them are capricious, some of them are, uh, you can negotiate with them. So it's a little hard to understand why halacha, realistically, why we view this as bari hazek and immediate, but that's what the Balitos would say. And the truth is, other Rishonim reject this, other Rishonim say, these chalukim are not really compelling. They, 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 don't, they don't really seem like persuasive distinctions, whether between these two cases or other cases in the Gemara. Other Rishonim just throw up their hands and they say that there's no really satisfying principle distinction between these cases. And that's actually what uh, one of the issues that, that, that prompts a third approach, which Prometheus is going to bring now. He says, Tosusin in Balabastra rejects these distinctions. He has another question on these, another case in the Gemara that he says doesn't hold up to these distinctions. And they bring a third approach, an approach of the Ritzbah. Ritzbah was another one of the Balitosis. The, the Ritzbah is a, is a radically different approach. Unlike the, the Ri in these two approaches, the Ri tries to give what we would consider lumdish approaches. He tries to give uh, legalistic and uh, conceptual distinctions between different categories of cases. The Ritzbah takes a very different approach. The life of the law is experience and not logic, as Justice Holmes said. The, the Ritzbah says that, that it, it, you know, he agrees. We're not going to find a, a satisfying, brisk, conceptual distinction between the, all the cases of the Gemara. The, the, the distinction is a purely pragmatic one. It's, it's, it's not based on any great, grand, overarching, conceptual theory. It's a pragmatic distinction. The Ritzbah says, Dina de Gami is a knasa inun. The whole thing is only a penalty. It's a, it's a rabbinic penalty. It brings you a shalmi that says that. The penalty was, was imposed wherever Chazal thought that a certain type of Hezek was a problem. Wherever they thought 
there was some type of hezek which was commonly done and it was, was a scourge on society, they instituted a penalty to, to, to disincentivize it, to discourage it. So there's, there's no conceptual difference between the dozen or two cases the Gemara brings. Some are Chayev, some are Patr, some are, some are Grom Benizak and Patr, some are Dina de Garmi that you're Chayev. There is no real difference. It, it's just a societal question. Some of them were more prevalent, were more problematic. Some of them, Chazal felt there was a stronger need of stamping out than of discouraging. Those are the ones they called Dina de Garmi, and some of them were, were less of an issue, were, didn't commonly occur. Chazal didn't feel the need to address those, so they left those Meikar Adin, Grom Benizak, and Pater. But there is no satisfying conceptual distinction between the two. That's the approach of the Ritzbah. And he says, and the Smag holds that way, he says, so, so again, so the, according to this Chilak, the, the distinction is that apparently Moser getting, sicking human enemies on other, pro, other people's property was common, was something that Chazal felt had to, the stop had to be put to it. So they, they were Masaka and Dina Degami Yitzchayev. But uh, the dogs and the snakes, that wasn't so commonly done, and that, that wasn't such an issue, so Chazal didn't feel they had to make any takana for that case. Okay. Tosis, he says in, in, in Masaka Shavuos, says that Garmi is actually the right here. It's not a Knas. So it's Machlok Shishanam, whether it's a Knas or not. Okay. Now the Truma Sedeshim says, in light, of, in light of what we have now, we have three basic approaches of the Balitosvis to distinguish between Garmi and Grama. We have the Reed's first approach. It has to do with whether it's Bari Hazeka, whether it's certain or uncertain, and whether, whether it's considered the person himself did it or not. We'll focus on the certain and uncertain. The second, the second distinction is whether it happens immediately or after some duration. And the third distinction is the response that there is no real distinction. It's just a question of what Chazal felt important to Misakin and what they didn't feel important to Misakin. Says the Truma Sedeshin, in light of these three approaches, in our case, Shimon, the son-in-law, is Potter according to all opinions. According to the first approach of the Re, it has to be Bari Hazeka. It has to be something which is certain. We, we, it's, it's a sure thing. Our case is not considered Bari Hazeka any more than the case of the dog or the snake. Why, he says... Why isn't it? Why isn't it like? Uh, why why is it not like the case of Moser of, of showing a non-Jew an enemy, a Jew's property? Over there, he says it's non-Jews. He says non-Jews Yitzrok Atakfam. They 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 they're 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 uncontrollably greedy to to harm Jews. He says non-Jews have this uh, non-Jews. It's hopeless. Once once they're on the case, there's no chance they're gonna they're gonna hold back. He says. But Ganav Yisrael, a a Jewish Ganav. Even if he's a, uh, a reputation for stealing, even if he's not a tzaddik, he has a reputation of being a criminal. But a Jew, there's always hope. The Pintalayid, we always hope he'll be Mahar Bachuva, famous Gemara in Kedushin. The Gemara says if, a, if you perform Kedushin, a man tells a woman, Almanashani tzaddik, this Kedushin is valid, Altnai, on condition of a tzaddik, even if he's a Russia Gomer. Until uh, five minutes ago, he was a Russia Gomer. She's Mekudeshes, at least Misafik, because we say, maybe he's a tshuva, he's a yid, maybe there's always a possibility he's a tshuva. Maybe that's only a chumrah because of Eshes. Eshes says, no, but Lamaisi, you see that there's a possibility that he's a tshuva, so it's not called Bari Hezekah. So here also, even though this Ganav is, uh, is, uh, ha- has a well-earned reputation as a Ganav, maybe he'll, may- maybe he'll uh, see the error of his ways, maybe he'll uh, reform and he won't do the Gneva, so when you send him out, when you point him at the at your, friend, at your father-in-law's store, he might not do it. He might, uh, he might get religion. He might decide he doesn't want to be a Ganav anymore. And he might pull back and not do it. So it's not Bari Hezeka. Furthermore, he says, crime. Crime is dangerous. The guy might, uh, the guy might protect his property. He might catch you. He, he doesn't want to lose his fortune. Crime is risky. 
He says, maybe for that reason he'll say, uh, this is too risky. I'm not going to pull off this job. A lot of money is here. You know, who knows what kind of security measures he has in place. So that, Moser is different. Moser, for some, Moser, we don't say that. We don't say that he's going to pull back because he's afraid of the Jew. The, 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 the bandits here, the, the enemy governments, are not afraid of Jewish civilians. That They're not going to pull back out of any kind of fear of consequences. Okay. So, that's his first, so according to the first approach of the re, that the, that the key question is Bari Hazeka or not, then this is not Bari Hazeka, and therefore it's, it's only Grand Benizaki. He gets into a whole discussion about whether we, this Svar of, of, of maybe Hilbin Mahar Bachuva, we are Choshesh for that, we're not Choshesh for that. He goes back and forth. He says, uh, he ultimately comes out, we are Choshesh, that, he'll, that he'll, he'll, he'll have second thoughts, and good, and so on. So he goes on, he goes on at some length about this, but that's how he comes out that he, uh, that, 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 that's how he comes out that he, that, 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 that he might not do it because he might, he might decide he doesn't want to steal. He might decide he's, uh, he's not going to do it. So ultimately it's not called Bari Hezeka. He says, he says, that, that's, that's how he comes out after going back and forth and back and forth. He has different proofs for or against, but he comes out. That even though he's a Ganav Mefursim, even though Levi is a well-known Ganav, not called Bari Hazeka, even though it's certainly Yitzro Tukfo, Ligzlov Lignav Mamun, even though it's Yitzharai, he certainly likes stealing, but okay, he might not do it, it's not Bari Hazeka. That's according to the first approach of the Re. According to the second approach of the Re, the question is whether the Hezek has Hezek happens right away or not. So he says, this is also not right away. He says, uh, Shimon goes to Levi, he points out the, where, where the secret passageway is. It doesn't happen right away, it's like the dog. You, you, you sick the dog on your friend, dog has to run over, he has to decide. It, it doesn't happen instantaneously. For some reason, the case of Moser is considered the, the, the damage happens immediately. Still don't really understand why, but that we call the damage happening immediately. But in general, these other cases, it takes some time before the damage occurs. Levi, if, if he's a skilled and careful Ganov, I guess he has to scope out the site, he has to do his research, he has to make his plans and look for a good time to, where people aren't looking and so on. It's okay, so the crime is not going to happen immediately, so it's not called Miyad. So according to either of those two, according to either of those two, the, this, this is not called Bari Hezekah, it's not certain. It's not called the Hezek Nasa Miyad because the Hezek doesn't happen immediately. According to the third approach, the approach of the Ritzbah, it's all the way to the end of the Chuva, he says, This is not something usual. Conspiracies to commit theft are not so common. I mean, organized crime is a big thing today, so I, I don't know how common it has to be. But he says it's not common at all. And certainly, according to the read, that this was a knas to deal with cases that were particularly prevalent. So there's no need to do it. Uh, there's no need to make a knas. Imkain, bottom line of the Trumasadeshen, Literally, the last line, with the kolatimim miunira, according to all these distinctions of the balaitosis, when we say gram benizak and potter, and when we say dina de garmi Shimon, even though it's chata behechti, Shimon is a sinner, he caused others to sin, he caused Levi to sin, what he did is a sin. Mikolakam potter milashalem, he is potter, the court cannot force him to pay. Again, the halach of grama is, you're considered chayav dina shemayim. You are considered that there's a chayav, a moral obligation. Hashem holds you morally responsible, but Basin cannot force you to pay. But in Adam, you are potter. That is the opinion of the Trumas Adeshim. The Ramah and Shulchan Aruch Paskins this way. The Ramah Paskins that if someone 
points out an opportunity to steal, or even send someone to steal, any, any form of conspiracy, the Mishaleach, the organizer, the planner, is not Chayef. The Ramah comes up with a new reason, though. The Trumasadashin, as we've seen, his entire reason is because he analyzes the whole thing from beginning to end, literally, from the, from, from the, within the framework of within the framework of Grama ben Isaac and Pater, as opposed to Dina de Garmi Yitzchayev. His whole tshuva is a discussion of the question of when do we say for certain types of Grama Yitzchayev and when don't we say that. For Hamas, I have a whole different Pater here. My, I have a whole different reason why he should be Pater. There's a famous Talmudic principle called Ein Shliach Ledvara the law of agency, that I can make someone an agent to do things for me. That does not apply when it comes to an Avera. We, we, we do Gitin by, agent, by agency. They used to sometimes do Kedushin by agency. We don't do that today. You can be Mafresh Truma by agency. Some of the mitzvahs that we, that we do, like Shofar and uh, Shofar and Megillah, according to some postkim, work via agency. Agency is a major doctrine in Halacha that someone else can act on behalf of somebody else. But there's a rule, Ein Shlech Bar Avera, for, for Averas, for crimes, for sins, the principle of agency does not operate. So the, only the actual perpetrator of a crime is Chayev. says the Ramah. So I don't even need the reason the Truma Sedeshin of Grama. It doesn't matter. A person is not liable for what his agent does. The Shach points out the Ramah seems to have some... The Ramah is very hard to understand. He, he seems to be conflating, conflating different halachic principles. What does it matter that there's no agency? The issue in the Truma Sedeshin was not Timachayevim under the doctrine of agency. The, mission, the, the issue in the Truma Sedeshin was Timachayevim because you're the cause of it, even if he's not your agent. If you cause it, you're Chayev, even without any doctrine of agency, unless it's called Grama and not Garmi, and that's what the Truma Sedeshin discusses. The fact that there's no agency doesn't stop you from being held liable under the doctrine of you did it, you did it indirectly. So you, you need both. You have to say, first of all, Einschlich is Baravera, and second of all, also, it's not considered Dina de Garmi. If it would be Dina de Garmi, it wouldn't matter to her that we say Ein Shlech Dvar Aver. I'll call upon him. So that's, uh, that's, a, a, that, that, that's a tricky legal point here. But Lahalacha, the Ramah, the Trumah agree. The Shach agrees. The Lahalacha, all these great posts can agree. The Trumah the Ramah, the Shach, that there is no notion of conspiracy when people conspire to commit a crime, to cause injury to somebody else, theft, injury, and so on. So only the actual perpetrator is Chayev. If you can catch him, you can make him pay your Chayev. The organizer, the planner, the sender, the facilitator, these people are not Chayev. Again, if they actually receive the stolen goods, that might be different. But insofar as they, they did not receive the stolen goods, if they just planned and facilitated and organized and encouraged and incited, all these, all these things, you're not Chayev, whether for the reason that it's called Grom Benizak and his Potter, whether for the reason of the Ramah, the Einschlich Varavera, Halacha has no notion of conspiracy, has no notion of accessory, only the person who committed the crime. Again, in, in God's law, you have a moral obligation. Morally, morally you're responsible. But Adam, in terms of what, the, what a court can enforce, what a court can hold you liable for, in Halacha there is no such thing. The perpetrator himself is Chayev. The planner, facilitator, organizer, insider is not Chayev. That's what these posts can say. Now, opposed to this, is a tshuva of the Tashbats. Opposed to this is a tshuva of the Tashbats, who's, which is actually the Ramad does bring himself a version of it. The Ramad does bring this elsewhere in Choshen Mishpat. Tashbats was, was dealing with a somewhat complicated case, so we're not going to get into the whole tshuva and all the details of his case, but the Tashbats was dealing with a case, it was a case involving Mesira, the halacha that's brought in the laws of Mesira, of, of giving over Jewish property into the hands of the enemy. 
In the case of the Tashbats, there was an additional layer. There were two Jews involved and a non-Jew. So what, what happened was Shimon, uh, Shimon, Shimon had a, a star against, against Ruvain. There was a Yishmaeli, an Arab, who had, uh, who had lent Ruvain money and had, and, and had a bill and, and had a note against Ruvain. Apparently Ruvain had already paid it back. The note was still somehow in the possession of Shimon. Shimon wound up giving the, giving the star back to a guy, a different guy. Um, Shimon wound up giving the star by mistake, apparently. The details are not relevant to us. But he wound up giving the star back to a guy, and the guy was then able to sue Reuven for the money, and Reuven's protestations that he didn't know the money were to no avail because the, the fellow had the, the note. The note should have been destroyed or stamped or canceled or something. Because Shimon gave the note back to the guy, the guy was able to collect the debt again from Reuven. Now, Shimon did not give the debt directly back to the guy. What happened was, Shimon gave the, the note, for some reason, to another Jew, another Jew, and the other Jew wound up giving the note to the guy. So, there, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of things that were not entirely clear here. The Tashbats goes through a kind of, uh, more like a textbook exercise, if this would be the case, if that would be the case. He, he kind of plays with the facts a lot, just to analyze what would happen under various factual assumptions. So we're not going to get into all the different possibilities of what actually happened, why he did it, and so on. But the, for our purposes, we're just going to consider one portion of the Tashbat where he says, in a case where Shibin gave it to the other, the other Jew, called the other Jew Levi, and Levi gave it to the guy. So normally Shimon would not be liable, because Levi's liable. Levi was the one who was considered a moser for taking the star and giving it to the guy, which enables the guy to sue Reuven for the money. So Levi might be liable. But Shimon should have no liability because, because Shimon didn't do it. Levi did it. Says the Tashbats, that's true. Of course that's true. However, if Levi is someone who is muhsak, if Levi is someone who is established, that's what he does, it's established that he turns over Jewish property to Goyim, then Shimon is chayev. Shimon is chayev for the loss. Why? Even though he didn't do it, Levi did it, even though even though normally we say there's no liability for what someone else does on your behalf, the perpetrator is liable, not the planner, not the, not, not the person who sent the shliach. Says, says the Tashbats, this case, we don't say that. In this case, we say there is shliach varavera. And he makes a very interesting argument as to why. He says, why do we say in shliach varavera? Where does that rule come from? The, the rule is, again, that when, when someone does an avera, when someone makes a shliach to do an avera, we say in shliach varavera, the law of agency is suspended, only the shliach bears the consequences of what he does, not the mishalach. Where does that come from? Why is that true? So the Gemara gives a very uh, picturesque reason. The Gemara says, Why not? We tell the Shliach, you're really acting on behalf of the Meshalech, but God told you not to do that. So if the Rav, if God says, don't do that, it's an Avera, and you say, but he told me to do it. He's the, he's the Meshalech. Well, who are you going to listen to? You can listen to God and listen to the Meshalech. You should be listening to God, not the Meshalech. Says the Gemara, because the Shliach shouldn't be listening to the Mishalech, he should be listening to God, therefore the Mishalech is not Chayev. What does that mean? Just because he shouldn't have, but he did, he did listen to you, so why aren't you Chayev? So the way some posts can understand, the way the Tashbats understands, is that Shimon the Mishalech can say, I didn't really think he would listen to me. I told him to do it. We were just joking around. We were just, uh, we, we were just talking, words. I never thought he would listen to me. He's supposed to listen to God. I thought he would listen to God, not me. I told him to go do it. I, why do I think he should listen to me? It's awesome for him to do it. Divri Rav, he should listen to the Rav. 
says, says, the, says the Tashbats, along with many other poskim, that's what the Gemara means. Ein means that the reason the Meshleach is not liable is because he has a reasonable belief that the Shleach will not actually listen to him. Normally, a Meshleach is chayev because he should anticipate when he instructs the Shleach to do something, the Shleach will do it. Therefore, he accepts responsibility for whatever the Shleach does. In this case, because he, because he knows it's an Avera, he should assume the Shleach will not listen. Because the Shleach should not be listening to him. The Shleach should be listening to God. Therefore, the Meshleach is not responsible for what the Shleach does. Says the Tashbat, great, that's the argument. But someone who is muxak to do Averis, someone, especially the serious Avera of Mesira, someone who is, someone who has shown that he does not listen to God, that, that, he, that he does these terrible things, he's like an Apikaris even, a Moser is considered like uh, someone who's Moray, than an Apikaris, he's worse than an ordinary Russia, he's worse even than the Goyim. Since they're so uh, completely removed from, he's a Parik Ol, he's so completely removed from, from anything, so as far as you're concerned, there's no chance he's going to do the right thing and say, this is not right, I can't do this. He's shown himself to be deplorable and to be completely without uh, Jewish morals. Therefore, when you send such a guy who is muksuk to be a moser to go, to go do Mesira, you know perfectly well he will do it. And therefore, you cannot say, Divri Harav, Divri Talmud, Divri Mishoman, I never thought he would do it. You, knew, you certainly did know that he would do it. He does it all the time. He's, he's, he, he's removed himself from Klai Yisrael. He's worse than a guy. He's worse than an Apikaris. And therefore, you no longer have the excuse that, that you could say he didn't, you, didn't, you didn't think he would do it. Basically, in a nutshell, what the, what the, to express the Teshpats a little bit more simply, I, I don't know why he doesn't just say it in this, in this simpler form, he's saying, what do you mean you thought he wouldn't do it? He's muxuk to do it. He does it all the time. How can you say he's not, uh, you didn't think he was going to do it? So this is, this is what one of the arguments that Teshpats makes, that we don't say by someone with an established record of doing the Avera in question. And this, of course, has major ramifications throughout the halacha of, of conspiracy, of, of conspiracy to do crimes. I've been saying all along tonight that halacha generally has no notion of conspiracy, that only the perpetrator of a crime is chayev for his actions. The principal is not chayev. The, the, the principal can say, that's generally true, but in a case where the perpetrator is muxuk to do it, then, then we do say, I once wrote an article about this, about, 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 about let's say, holding uh, cases of... Uh, Governments that have terrorist proxies or organized crime in general, these types of questions. Can you hold the planners and the bosses high of what their agents do? So on the one hand, we say, and on the other hand, the Tashbat tells us, and some posts can say, anytime there is a, anytime it's clear the person has a reputation of listening, then the, we say, you can't say you didn't think he would listen. That certainly goes for, let's say, in an organized crime organization where, where, where the hitman you send out or the, the ganav you send out, he does these things every day, that that's, he's a career criminal. So then certainly he, he shows that, that he does this. You know, the case of suicide bombers, I don't know. You know successful suicide bombers only get you know, one chance to do it. He's never done it before. So I guess there, certainly as far to say that you can always, I never thought he would actually do it. On the other hand, some of them do do it. So I guess Yesh Lodzun, whether... Whether, whether you'd say that or not. But I'll call upon him that the basic rule is that the Tashbat is telling us a great Chiddush that since the reason of Ein Shlech is because Mishalech can say, I didn't think he would actually listen, in a case where he doesn't think that, he can't think that because he knows the guy does this all the time and the guy has shown he has, he's, he's, uh, he's certainly in the case where he's, he's shown he's worse than a Russia and worse than a guy, then we say Yesh Lech and the Mishalech is Chaya. 
So, according to the Tashbat, any time the criminal is muxuk, then the then the mishleach is chayav. Ramah passed like the Tashbat. The Ramah rules that if, if someone sends a shleach to do mesira, if the shleach is huxuk lasos kain, then the then the mishleach is chayav. You don't say in shleach varavera because he's huxuk bekach. So the other Ramah, the Ramah who brought the Truman Tadeshin about the case of the, the case of the son-in-law who sent the Ganav to steal, you have to say that that case was the Ganav was not Muksuk. Even though the Truman Tadeshin said in his tshuva, he described the Ganav, he said he was Muksuk and the Ganav Mephursim, it sounds like he was Muksuk, so I'm not sure. I don't remember if I saw an explanation of this. For some reason, the Ramah must have held that in that tshuva he wasn't really Muksuk, we, we don't know for sure he would steal, but in the case where the guy is muksuk to do masira, in that case, everyone would agree, according to the Ramah, the Ramah Paskins, in that case, we don't say ein shlechet varavera, we say yesh lechet varavera, insofar as the shlech is muksuk to do the thing that I sent him to do. However, the Tashbat is not universally accepted. The Shach is consistent across both these cases. The Shach says in all these cases, your potter, in the case where you sent the guy to steal your potter, in the case where you sent the guy to do masira, your potter, the Tashbat is wrong, the Ramah is wrong for bringing him, he says, he said it's just not true. The, the, the fact that somebody is muksuk does not make the shliach, does not mean that we say yesh lech varavera. He brings proofs from the Rishonim from the, and so on, he says. He says, the, 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 why not, he says. Why don't we say that? So ultimately he says that the, he says, even the Tashpats, he says, didn't, uh, he didn't rely on the Svarim. The Tashpats had, Tashpats had other objections as well. So the, the shach, based on a variety, of, uh, a variety of evidence, a variety of arguments from earlier poskim, the shach concludes, that the shach reiterates this throughout his Pirush and Chosh and Mishpat, he says this, doesn't matter if he's muksuk or not, the sheet of the shach is, that ein shlech varavera, period, full stop, it doesn't matter if he's muksuk or not, the halacha is ein shlech varavera, and therefore even if he's muksuk, halacha, halacha, as I said originally, has no notion of conspiracy, even if the fellow is muksuk bekach. So everyone agrees that in a general conspiracy, halacha has no notion of conspiracy to commit a crime. In a case where the shleich is muksuk, so there the Tashbats and the Ramah say, then yesh lechad varavera, and the shach says, no, ain't shleichad varavera, even in that case. Why? So the Ktsos, the Ktsos HaKoshin also agrees with the shach that ain't shleichad varavera is an absolute rule, that no matter what, even if he's muksuk pekach, we say ain't shleichad varavera. And the, the Ktsos also brings a proof of this, and the Ktsos says the Hezber is, that even though the Gemara does say this very picturesque reason about Divri Arav, Divri Atama, Divri Mishomen, he shouldn't be listening to you, if that's really the reason, it might make, it, it might make a difference as to whether he is Muxuk or not, says the Ksos, that's not really the reason, he says, he brings, he brings a Ritva, that's not really the reason, the real reason is it's Xerus Akasuk, the Torah simply did not, did not establish the doctrine of Shlichus to work in a case of Avera, doesn't matter what they think, whether he's going to do it, he's not going to do it, he's muksuk, he's not muksuk, none of that is really to the point. The real point is that shlichus is a chiddush of the Torah. The Torah, the Torah created a, do- a doctrine of shlichus. What the Torah gave, the Torah took away. What the Torah gave, the shlichus works in an ordinary situation. It took away. Shlichus does not work if it's an Avera. When the Gemara said Arav, the Gemara was just... Uh, with just giving like uh, a potential reason, that's not the real reason. The real reason is it's exeris akasiv. Doesn't matter if the shleich is muksik or not. So the bottom line is this is a major machlokas aposkim. Whether in a case where the shleich is muksik, whether we still say ein shleich varavera or not, according to the tashpats in the Ramah, if the shleich is muksik, we say yesh shleich varavera. According to the shach and the ktsos, even if the shleich is muksik, we still say ein shleich varavera. 
as I said, this is going to be relevant in different types of uh, situations involving career criminals, people who uh, have an established track record of doing certain types of crimes, typically in organized crime situations where people have conspiracies and the people doing the crimes. It's not their first rodeo. They've been committing these crimes before. So then, uh, according, to, according, to the, according to the Ramah and the Tashbat, there is, there is very good basis to hold the planners liable in that case. They can't say, I didn't think he would really listen. Of course you thought he would listen. He's been, doing, he's been working for you and uh, he's been working for you and mugging people for the last ten years. Why would you think today would be any different? On the other hand, according to the Ksos and the Shach, it doesn't matter. Ancient Vera period is a principle that no matter what, doesn't matter if he'll listen to you, he won't listen to you. There is simply no doctrine of agency and no doctrine of conspiracy, and therefore the principle is putter. We mentioned earlier, the Truma Tadashim says, seems to say that even if you're Muxik, you're putter, because maybe he'll do tshuva, even if he's a Russia Gar, maybe now he's doing tshuva. According to that, it would seem to be the, the, like the Shach and the Ksos, that, 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 that even if we accept that the reason is because because you don't think he'll listen to you. That's always the case, because there's always a possibility that he might not listen to you. Trumpetadeshin wasn't talking about ancient Lechadvaravera, he was talking about Bari Hazeka, the, the question of whether this is certain or not. But since the Trumpetadeshin says that, that, uh, that there's always the Pentelayid, he always might do tshuva, one could argue that according to that, even if we accept in Lambdas the, the, the Shita of the Ramah and the Tashbats, the ancient Lechadvaravera hinges on whether you expect him to do it or not, we can argue based on the Trumpetadeshin that you, you, always, you always think maybe he won't do it, because maybe he'll always. Uh, He'll always reform. There's always a chance he'll shape up. So I don't know, but I'll call upon him. The, the bottom line is, it's Machlok Zachronim, where the Tashbats and the Ramah say that because the ancient Varavera is based on the idea that, that you don't know if he'll really do it, in a case where it's clear that he'll do it, he's Muxik Bakach. The Halacha does recognize the notion of conspiracy, not like I said originally, while according to other postgame, according to the Shach and the Ksos, ancient Varavera is. An absolute principle. It doesn't matter, according to the Ksos, if you whether he'll listen to you or not. Shlichus is a chiddush Torah. The Torah didn't grant the doctrine of shlichus when it's an avera, and therefore halacha will never hold you criminally or civilly liable for what your agent did, even if you had every reason to expect that he would actually carry out your orders and follow the plan that you devised.